0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Now, if you'll turn with me uh, in your Bibles to, Ma- to Mark 16, hear these remarkable words of the resurrection of Jesus. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices, or bought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, There is the place they laid him. But go, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's it. That's where it ends. I mean, that's the end of the book of Mark. And you say, well, there's other verses here, aren't there? Yeah, right, but they weren't originally there. We believe that the earliest and most reliable copies of the gospel of Mark that we have end in verse 8. They end with, and they fled from the tomb, and they were seized by terror, and, and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Will you sit with me for just a moment in that mystery, that strangeness, that awkward ending? This is the resurrection of our Lord, and they end the story with a. They were seized by terror and amazement, and they ran away, and they didn't tell anybody anything. Are you kidding me? See, we believe that Mark is the oldest and the original gospel. The others, Matthew, and Luke at least, borrowed from the content of Mark to create the structure for their Gospels. And then they took some liberty and and told more flowery stories. They embellished it and used better language and doctored it up and made it sound really, really good and full like a Gospel ought to sound. I mean, think about this in Matthew's Gospel. I mean, at the resurrection in Matthew's version of the gospel, well, the disciples, two women, bow down at his feet, they run into him, they worship him, and, and there's this commissioning at the end, go into all the world, make disciples, it's going to be great, I'll be with you. I mean, it sounded a lot better than that, but that's Ma- Matthew. Well, in, in Luke's gospel, there's a commission as well. But Luke even takes it a step higher, and he has Jesus ascending into heaven. Now, that's how you end a resurrection, Right? But John's gospel has like all these personal physical encounters with these multiple disciples where Jesus is seen again and again and again. Mark doesn't even have Jesus at his own resurrection. I mean, if it ends at verse 8, like the oldest, most reliable copies ended, we believe, then the story of the resurrection of Jesus ends without Jesus there. Now, this is why the great professor of Preaching, Fred Craddock said, Is this any kind of way to run a resurrection? Well, no. Well, what's going on here? See, there is a there's an interesting thing happening at the end of this book. We believe that later some scribes may have added these details to finish it out because now they can't really compete with Matthew and Luke, and certainly not John. And so we added things like, you know, handling snakes and drinking poison and speaking in tongues, all those fun things that we do every Sunday, right? Nah. But I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the gospel ending seemingly incomplete. Let me tell you why. There's a phrase that we just read in the last verse of that gospel. The phrase sounded like this: Terror and amazement had seized them. Terror And amazement had seized them. You know, if we were to actually take a look into what the Greek words for terror and amazement are, this is what we would find. The word for terror is traumas. This is where we get trembling, quaking fear, and where we get the word trauma. Mm. That resurrection has something to do with knowing trauma. And, And if we translated the word for uh, amazement from the Greek, the Greek word for amazement is ecstasis, which means bewilderment, confusion, trance-like ecstasy. Is where we get the word ecstasy. Resurrection is found somewhere between trauma and ecstasy. And that is so good to my ears today for us to hear, because I can promise you this. There is someone who has gathered here in this house today, I promise you, who finds themselves somewhere between trauma and a bewildering, trance-like ecstasy. And you've gone through a thing, and that thing so shaped you that you came to church on a Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning at that, hoping to find something new, hoping to find something of a start over, a new beginning, a a resurrection. But you have convinced yourself that it's not possible because all that you have experienced these last months or years is based in this trauma that has left you bewildered. And you you think that you were miles away from this inner aliveness that we're all talking and singing about today. But I'm here to tell you this morning that if you find yourself somewhere between trauma that has marked you and marred you and wounded you, injured you beyond your own repair, if you find yourself somewhere between that and a bewildering kind of ecstasy, you are closer to the resurrection than you think. The one thing they knew was that He was dead. They saw His last breath Leave his body. They watched him as he was arrested and he was ushered from court to court. They saw him accused and abused. They saw him beaten beyond recognition. And then they pinned him to this cross. In the words of an old song, they they hung him high and they stretched him wide, and he hung his head and there. He died, and if they knew nothing else, they knew that he was dead. They, they pried his, his hands and feet away from the wood and lowered his body, wrapped it light and dead in a cloth. And then two disciples who had been incognito the whole time stepped forward. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus, but only under the cover of darkness because both men were members of the Sanhedrin. They were part of the system that sent him to his execution, but they were, as the gospels describe, secret disciples. But when they saw him dying and dead on the cross, they stepped forward. It was their day. To come out, we are one of them. Give the body to me. And Joseph takes the body and says, I will bury him in my tomb. And in a borrowed tomb, they hurriedly buried the dead body of our Lord. They knew on Friday that he was was gone. And they had to do it in a hurry because Sabbath was coming. Sundown was coming, and at sundown you could do no work like this, lest they be found guilty and suffer the same consequence. So they hurriedly put him in a borrowed tomb. They couldn't anoint the body. They'd have to wait until Sabbath was over. That's a long Saturday. You know, sometimes I think that we overlook the magnitude and the gravity and the The despair of Saturday. We talk about Friday and all the stuff that happened on Friday, and we certainly talk about Sunday, but there is something that happens on Saturday. Saturday is when you have nothing to do but think of that which you have lost and feel the heaviness of all that has fallen apart all day on Saturday. They were disillusioned. And disappointed, they were in despair. All day on Saturday, they began to... Judas had already taken his life because he couldn't even live with the memory of what he had done. Peter had already denied him. The the disciples had scattered, and many of them were beginning to wonder, did we miss this? Did we get this wrong? Was he really worth it? See, Saturday is not just a 24-hour period. Saturday is a season in your life. There are Saturday seasons, and you know what I'm talking about if you've ever been through a thing. Because the thing happens on a Friday, and you know the thing, and you know what it's like for the decision to be made, but for the papers to not yet be signed. You, You know what it's like to have already... Retired, but you don't quite feel the freedom everyone said would, would be yours. You know what it's like on Friday to receive the diagnosis that you have a disease, but you don't quite know yet what the treatment will be. See, Saturday is a season that we experience. Saturday is between the crucifixion of Friday and the resurrection of Sunday. And on Saturday, it's a dangerous day. It's dangerous to live in Saturday. Because in Saturday, you make decisions you'd never make on Friday. You make decisions that you'd never make if you could see Sunday coming, but you just don't even know on Saturday if you're going to get to the other side of this thing. It was a long day. Can you imagine what it felt like for these women? The text says, That after the Sabbath was over, they went and they purchased these oils, these ointments, because they knew, even in the midst of their grief, that I can feel some kind of way, like my life is falling apart, but there's some things we got to do. I've learned a lot from the women of the resurrection. You know, we preachers make a habit of saying, usually around this time every year, you know, all the disciples abandoned Jesus ultimately. I mean, I've said that. That, that preaches pretty good. I mean, that's, that'll preach. It's not just Judas, not just Peter that did not. All of them did, and so do you, and so do I. That's a good sermon, right? Oh, and the problem is, it's not, it's not entirely true. The women went nowhere, they were the last to leave the foot of the cross. And they were the first to show up to anoint the body on day one of the new creation. They went nowhere. Mark tells us in the passage we read just a moment ago that there was Mary Magdalene and there was Mary, the mother of James. And then there was Salome who was named after a deli meat. I'm just seeing if you're keeping up here, right? And That's Mark's version. But the other gospels say other women were there too. There's Mary of Bethany. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. And there's Joanna. And these women have something to teach me. Because they have the capacity to do something that, frankly, men miss. Now listen, some of the strongest women in my life, you know what they're good at? They're good at multitasking. You should see my wife drive. She's over this way. I'm not looking over there to make eye contact. The things she can do while she's driving. I mean, sometimes I'll come home from work and it's at night and then she's worked all day and she's making a dinner and she's folding laundry. She's watching A Little House on the Prairie and she's doing taxes all at the same time. She's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, what can we do? You're doing everything. Women, listen, I don't want to generalize, but the women of the resurrection. They have something to teach us. You know why? Because they show us how to hold in their heart two seemingly opposed things at one time. They understood what it meant to feel anguish and yet still be attentive. They show us what it's like to feel brokenhearted and still remain bold. They know what it's like to be crushed and still capable. They know how to feel disillusionment and disappointment and yet still be determined. They know what it's like to be exhausted and enduring. Now, if you don't stop me, I'm just going to do the whole alphabet. They know how to be fear filled and faith full, they know how to grieve and yet go. They were the last to leave the cross and the first to arrive at the tomb, and they have something to teach us because it's important today that somebody here know this because you have been through Saturday for a long time. And if you're in Saturday long enough, you begin to believe that because I am so broken and because I feel as if I'm unraveling from the inside, you begin to believe that you don't have the faith to move forward. And these women say, yes, you do. Because faith is not about something that you create from the inside. It's about something you access that he already put there. Mary Magdalene, come on. Mary Magdalene, when Jesus met her, she had seven demons. He delivered her from her own demonic, haunting life. And she was tormented by the demonic in her life, and he delivered her. And she's like, you know what? Rome can't do anything to me that I haven't already done to myself for years. So you go ahead and kill me. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying put. Mary of Bethany, Martha's sister, saw Jesus raise her brother from the grave, from the clutch of death itself. And, and she says, you know, I will sit at his feet and listen to anything he has to say when he can speak into death and death dies. So he sits, she sits at his feet and, and she anoints his feet and she bows in Matthew's gospel to his feet upon the resurrection and, and she's going to follow those feet wherever those feet go. Whether those feet are alive and quickened or those feet are nail-pierced and filled with rigamortis Said again, I'm not going anywhere. And then <laughs> there's, there is Salome, who is the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which is unfortunate that we know them as the sons of Zebedee because they're also the sons of Salome. Can I just tell you as a parent, there is no way to show more love to me in any better way than to love my children. Jesus called her boys, loved her boys, gave her boys purpose, and Salome says, I'm not going anywhere. She shows up to anoint his body. And don't get me started about Mary, the mother of Jesus, who fed him from her own breasts before he multiplied loaves and fishes and fed other people. It was she who heard his first syllables, Abba, Ima, Mama, Daddy. She heard him speak before we even knew that he was the Word become flesh. She's the one who taught him how to take those first awkward, wobbly steps when he was a toddler and his head was bigger than the rest of his body and and, and the weight was not yet balanced. She taught him how to walk before we knew he could walk on waves. A mama doesn't go anywhere. So she's there and doesn't leave. And we have some things to learn from these women because they show us that if you have been transformed by Jesus, Jesus transformed their lives. And because of the transformation that they had experienced, they found within them the faith to do the thing that is necessary even when every bone in your body is resisting it. Yeah. So they did. We're told that when the Sabbath was over, they walked to the tomb, and there they go. They pick up the things that they need. They've got the ointment, the frankincense, the myrrh, these spice girls on, on their way to the tomb. That was supposed to be funny. I'll try that again. They are the the frankincense and the myrrh. This is your cue, these spice girls. Thank you. Thank you. And they... They On their way, they say, I know what I'm supposed to do with this. I know I have a job and I know how to do this thing and I know where to go and, and how to go about it. But then they begin asking themselves a question. They keep saying, who's going to move the stone? It's a big stone. And all, all three of us together can't move this thing. Who's, who's going to move the stone? And I, I'm, I'm moved by that. You know why? (laughs) Because there's always a stone. There's always a stone. When God has called you to a thing, to become a thing, to do a thing, to go to a place, when God calls something out of you, there will always be a stone in the way and I'm physically unable to do this thing. That's my stone. I'm, I am emotionally not prepared to do this thing. Relationally, I don't think we're at this place yet where I can do this thing. There's always a stone, and if you can name your stone, here's something that you'll discover. It's always going to be bigger than what you can handle on your own. That's by design. Because if you could handle it on your own, there would be no need for God. But when you face any stone, any obstacle, any barrier that keeps you from where God is calling you and calling you to be and to do and to go, then you're in the perfect posture to receive help from the one who is greater than you. I've said it before and I'll say it again and again and again. The call of God will never take you where the grace of God will not sustain you. The call of God will never take you where the grace of God will not sustain you. So they get there, and to their surprise, they see that the stone has been rolled away. And this is what I love about this part of the story. It's told in the other Gospels, too. Here, the stone is rolled away. There's a young man sitting over to the side talking to them. But in Luke's Gospel, it gets really cool. In Luke's Gospel, the stone is rolled away, and we're told that there was an angel sitting on the stone, which I find very fascinating. The angel sitting on the stone. It's interesting the themes that emerge in the gospel. He's sitting on the very thing that they were afraid they couldn't handle. That's always the case, isn't it? That Jesus is always presenting himself as the one who has command over the very thing we are most intimidated by. So they're at sea. And there's a storm and the rain falls and the wind blows and the the waves lap against the boat and they fear that they are going to capsize. And where's Jesus? Napping below deck. God has the capacity to not be rattled by the things that rattle us. Another storm comes up and one day they, they fear they're about to capsize. They look out and think it's a ghost, but it's Jesus walking on the waves. He's the one who walks on top of the things that we fear will consume us. It's a theme that repeats again and again. Lord, there's not enough food to feed this multitude. He blesses and breaks and there's enough. So the women get there and they find that the stone is rolled away and sitting on top of the stone is the one to remind them that God is always in command of the things that we think are in our way. And interestingly, in Jewish tradition and rabbinic culture, you would sit down to teach. It's a seat of authority. It's a seat of, I have some instructions for you and you want to listen. And so in Luke's gospel, the women show up and he's sitting on the stone and he says to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? I find that fascinating because we know why they were there. They were going to anoint the body. They couldn't do it during the Sabbath. We know why they're there. But maybe the question is not for them. Maybe the question is for us. Because isn't that what we always do? We are always going back to the same grave that keeps us entombed and not alive, and we constantly return to the old ingrained patterns that are full of death death. Same behavior, same habits, same choices, same relationships that cause us to decline and not be who God has called us to be. It's like the psalmist or like the, 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 the proverb. It's like the dog who keeps going back to his own vomit. Why do we seek living things among that which is not alive? Well, but that's Luke's gospel, so there's no time to preach that one. In Mark's gospel, the man says to them, as the stone is rolled away, he's not here, he's going to Galilee, because he is going ahead of you. And I find that phrase maybe the most compelling of all. Some of you, if you're like me, will find yourself stuck in seasons of Saturdays because you don't know what's on the other side of Saturday. And here's the newsflash. Nobody does. You never know what is ahead. You can't control and predict the outcome of your future. But the promise, are you kidding me, that the risen one is going ahead of you? He's always going ahead of you. He's never calling you to a place where he is not already there prepared to bring you in into your next season of faithfulness with him. The call of God will never take you where the grace of God will not sustain you. He's always going ahead of you to prepare your way. He's going behind you on the days that you feel like retreating to encourage you one step at a time. He goes beside you on your right and left. Don't make me do my benediction. Come on. Right? He's always going ahead of you. Now, one more thing. Remember that verse that we started this sermon with, the awkward verse that ends the gospel in such a strange way, where they were seized by terror and amazement. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, in English, we clean up the end of that, that verse. In English, it ends this way the very last phrase of the entire, last sentence of the entire gospel of resurrection ends with, for they were afraid. It's nice and clean. It's got syntax and flow and grammar. It's all just right. In Greek, it's a mess. In Greek, the word order is completely reversed. It's changed. This is how the gospel ends in Greek. They were afraid for... They were afraid for... It's an incomplete sentence. Terror and amazement had seized them. They were afraid for the gospel of mark ends with a sentence fragment and i think it's beautiful now some have said well maybe it's because the way they carried the scrolls in such a way that the edges at the end of the story might get tattered and torn maybe it's lost along the way maybe maybe or because the word of god is sharper than a two-edged sword because The mystery of the Word of God can do with us and around us and and to us things that we can't predict or control. Maybe Mark intended it. What if Mark intended to end the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus with an incomplete sentence so that your life finishes it? They were afraid for what? For the same thing you're afraid for. They were afraid for not knowing what tomorrow will hold. They were afraid for not being able to predict or control the outcome of how this whole story plays out. They were afraid for the same things that you're afraid for, afraid for the possibility that I have been seeking the living among the dead the whole time. Yeah. And they ran and told no one. That's not really true. Can't be. I mean, they had to tell somebody. And that somebody told somebody. And then those somebodies told a bunch of other somebodies who eventually told somebody who told me to tell you that you don't have to be afraid anymore. Go ahead and let terror and amazement seize you. Go ahead and be found somewhere between trauma and ecstasy. Go ahead. You know why? He's gone ahead of you. He is ready for you. He is not here. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Thanks be to God.